Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Stephen Roach has provided leadership to all of Wall Street and academics with optimistic perspective on China. At Morgan Stanley for decades, arguably inventing a Wall Street attack on relations with China. Stephen Roach is now at Yale University and joins us today. Really thrilled. It was you and Jonathan Spence. We were unfortunate not to get Professor Spence with us today. But we are thrilled to have you here. We're going to talk China in the next block, Steve. And then I want to talk Rogoff and populism. But right now... I want to recapitulate why guys like you are so upset at Wilbur Ross, Peter Navarro economics. What does the Secretary of Commerce and the professor from Irvine, what do they get wrong about our relationship with China? They're fixated on um, the bilateral uh, tensions in a multilateral relationship. They suffer from what I call trade deficit disorder. The U.S. has deficits, Tom, with 101 countries around the world. That's a multilateral problem. And it's a reflection of our shortfall of national savings. When you don't save and you want to grow, you run big current account deficits to attract foreign capital to keep you growing, and you run big deficits with lots of countries. Mm -hmm. If you put pressure on one of them, China is the lightning rod in this, uh, then the Chinese piece just goes somewhere else, usually to a higher cost producer, it taxes American middle-class workers uh, as right. a result. So uh, this is a flawed strategy that does not take into account the macroeconomic imbalances that the United States has long faced. Ambassador Hormats was with us the other day. I can think of anyone across all of economics and politics who knows a game theory comes into play. How will China respond to an overt presentation today of Ross Navarro economics? Well, they've, they've certainly heard it before. And, uh, but I think it's going to come on. It's going to be face-to-face in Florida. They're going to hear this stuff. Well, they're going to, they're going to hear the, the campaign rhetoric of candidate Trump, which was very anti-China. China was the lightning rod of his America first uh, uh, campaign. It was very attractive, obviously, in securing uh, an extraordinary victory for uh, President Trump. So, you know, the Chinese will hear it. Uh, and uh, they will not respond uh, in kind. They, they will. Uh, they have their own agenda in terms of their uh, their own uh, domestic and global initiatives, whether it's the uh, Belt and Road uh, Pan Regional Investment Plan, the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, their own version of um, uh, Pan Regional Trade, this um, uh, RCEP uh, Regional. A cooperation economic partnership agreement that they are espousing. They have uh, their global agenda, and the U.S. is, is looking inward. So uh, this is uh, uh, mm. two approaches that are very, very no. different. Right. Let's now. go to Guy Johnson in London. Guy, good morning. 
Good morning to you, Stephen. Um, what economic policies would you advise the administration, therefore, to pursue? What would the, the changes that you would make, and do you see any of them coming down the pike out of the White House or the Treasury, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the, the one area that I think um, uh, is <clears throat> that I've stressed and others have stressed, Guy, is uh, taking advantage of the fact that China is rebalancing its co economy, opening up consumer and services markets on a scale and scope that the world uh, uh, has, has not seen in a long time. And so we need to focus our policies in getting access to those markets, and there's no better approach to do that than through this uh, long and, uh, and arduous negotiation for a bilateral investment treaty between the United States and China. Uh, the president um, claims to be the world's greatest deal maker. What better opportunity uh, for the art of the deal uh, than to push through on a bilateral investment treaty? All of us uh, who are engaged in the U.S.-China um, relationship would like nothing yep. better than to see something like that. What role does the dollar have to play in this? The, the renminbi dollar uh, cross rate uh, has, again, long been a, an area of focus uh, for uh, politicians. Uh, the president has is, is incorrectly accused China of manipulating the currency right now. They did certainly do that uh, historically, but in the last few years, uh, they have been uh, trying to defend uh, their currency from uh, falling. Uh, I think this is a false issue and, and not really right. of great strategic importance to this uh, mm. bilateral relationship. I want to welcome Jerome Schneider to uh, Surveillance here. He's the head of the short-term funding desk at PIMCO. Joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Great to, to see you. Great to speak with you. Uh, let me start with the minutes we got yesterday. We can talk about uh, what they said about the balance sheet in a moment. But in terms of economic outlook and the, the path forward for raising rates, what did you learn from those minutes yesterday, if, uh, if anything? Yeah, I think, I think the main point actually has to do with the fact that the Fed wants to move forward with this normalization process. They think the, the, the key components for growth are in place, at least, uh, and obviously not acknowledging the fiscal side of the equation, but simply acknowledging the data side of the equation, that they, protect that they project that you know, rates are going to be increased in normalizing this process over the foreseeable future. What's most important to me is that when you look at, when you look at the data, obviously the Fed's going to react to that. That's the hard reaction function. But we should recognize the fact that this is not simply – the beginning of a rate cycle, but more importantly, which is very different than normal rate cycles, it's the beginning of the normalization process. So what we saw yesterday was simply the pulling out of the recipe card uh, and trying to really figure out how that's going to be done. The recipe, no recipe is perfect, at, you know, from the first go, so they're going to try to tinker with it. What they did sort of give us is a time frame, i.e. how long to, you know, effectively bake the recipe. And then more importantly, what some of the key ingredients were, being treasury and mortgages at that point in time. And so we're going to see some refinement over the next over the next few months, I think, in terms of how we address, uh, address that normalization process, leaving themselves plenty of optionality to, to produce the perfect product. What's, what's the cake going to look like? What's the perfect product going to look like when we're, we're done with the recipe? Or do we have a sense of what normalization looks like or what it is? Well, it's going to be slow and methodical. And I think that this is not a one-and-done type of recipe. You know, there's going to be many trials and uh, trials. And, 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 and one thing we've seen and as a practitioner of the market is that, you know, looking at the plumbing of the market, 
the Fed is clearly methodical in that process. When you look at previous episodes of you know, quantitative easing or even implementation of new tools like the reverse repo policy. These are things that take quite some time for them to get comfortable with. And they're not simply, you know, a, a dash of salt and making things perfect. It's actually quite a quite a long uh, laborious uh, passion, if you will. And, and so the process here is going to be one of trying to figure out what the reaction function of the market is. Mm. They're not going to want to tighten financial conditions markedly. They need to do that clearly because their current normalization process of hiking rates doesn't tighten financial conditions as much as they want. But on a go-forward basis, recognize the fact that there's going to be, have to be a balance between being prudent with that measurement, i.e. how much they taper, and then ultimately what their ultimate goal is. The communication of the latter is actually key and essential, and we should get some clarification on that later this year. That's what they're highlighting. Is there a challenge here of walking and chewing gum at the same time? In other words, you've got a Fed that wants to raise rates. You've got a Fed that wants to address the balance sheet. How complicated is it? How complex is it to, to do both things at once? Well, the, the Fed is actually pretty good at walking and chewing gum yeah. at the same time, but that sometimes the gum gets stuck on the bottom of there the shoe. <laughs> so that's the challenge. And, and I think admittedly, when, when you look at it, you know, they have to walk a little quicker or walk a little slower in order to avoid those pitfalls. The Fed is actually, you know, has a lot of optionality. As a market practitioner, sure, it makes things a little bit more difficult to me. I would love to know how the recipe turns out. I would like to know how quickly they're going to walk or how slowly they're going to walk. But that's sort of the art, if you will, behind their science. And ultimately, our job as, a, you know, as, a, as practitioners and more important guardians of capital for our clients is simply to focus on what those reaction functions might be and use the best probable estimates to figure out where are the sources of volatility in the marketplace that are underestimated? And I think that's really what we're going to have to be focusing on over the next six months. Not necessarily the, you know, the, the fact that we're going to have a rate hike or two, because that's a, in all likelihood, but really, more importantly, the reaction function of that normalization process, and more importantly, what we think that glide path is going to look mm, like. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the, the ultimate goal, because of that glide path you know, could, in, in effect, change the shape of the yield curve very, very quickly. And, that, and that's very hey, dangerous to fixed income investors. At some within the time. mathiness of this, <laughs> with a reaction function on a smoothed glide path, there's a point where they run into the brick wall of neutral or restrictive nature. Where is that level? Do you or, you know, the 400 other brilliant people at PIMCO, do you have a clue where the actual neutral level is of Fed rate or where they become restrictive? Yeah, uh, you know, 2,200 people. You know, uh, <laughs> surveillance uh, correction. Uh, yeah, surveillance that, uh, correction. <laughs> but, uh, but I would say I would say that that process comes in twofold. One, part of it's realizing where that natural rate of reserves is going to be. So that's one aspect of it. So recognize that it's not a zero bound of reserves. It's something probably in the realm of two trillion, two and a half trillion. So that's one element to that. Second of all, that clearly goes into that is the rate itself. And then ultimately where you think that terminal rate is going to be. So it's probably going to be, you know, ideally aim around at zero real rates, but ultimately at 1% real rates, which puts you in nominal terms, you know, roughly around two and three quarters, 3%, not so different than the summary of economic projections, the SEP. Ultimately, the challenge is the trajectory of those rates. And I think that's where money capital will be made and lost over the next two, three, five years in many regard that might, you know, m might be underappreciated by the market at this point in time. And there's clearly other external factors, including fiscal, which come into that equation more and more. So while, and this is the interesting thing, is while we're clearly in the handoff stage of monetary to fiscal policy, as we've noted at PIMCO over the past year, 
the, the challenge is, is that fiscal policy will increasingly be noted or be, be mandated by their, their, their notion that they need to normalize policy, but also ultimately react to any fiscal element. So that normalization process might, um, might ultimately be changing that terminal rate, Tom, and I think that's the, mm -hmm. the goal. So the math is important, but it's frankly the equation. You know, the equation might simply be A equals B instead of A plus B plus C equals X. Huh. You know, you just need mm -hmm. to add a few more variables because there could be incremental steps. That's too much. Excuse me. Uh, does too he many understand variables? No, sorry. <laughs> there's jobs day tomorrow. We're math-free for the next 48 hours. <laughs> okay. uh, how big an X factor is communication? You think back to... Uh, the way Ben Bernanke approached this, saw him with 60 Minutes at his hometown in South Carolina. You see the way Janet Yellen approaches Fed communication. We're looking at some perhaps radical personnel change at the Fed. Does that complicate things? Could, could the way that this is explained or the way that the Fed approaches communicating change as a result of that? So the number one essential overlooked element of f policy over the next year is going to be the composition of the Fed. That's clearly going to be a challenge, uh, n not necessarily from a negative point of view, but just in terms of clarity point of view. You know, we've, you know, I've been sort of uh, uh, suggesting over the past you know, three to six months uh, since the election that basically you might not necessarily get as hawkish of outcome of Fed uh, that you than you might expect, but something slightly more hawkish than we currently have. And so the ultimate, you know, the ultimate thing is when you look at vacancies, the, the three, and then obviously lacquer, and then you have the two vacant, two potential vacancies, mm -hmm. I should say, in terms of chairman and vice uh, chair, chair and vice chair. That is in of itself um, going to be a challenge to sort of forecast ultimately what dots look like, what that terminal rate looks like, and ultimately how normalization has to occur. One of the interesting things, think about it, is when, uh, when, when uh, Dr. Bernanke you know, came in and, and sort of handed off, he sort of set the ball in motion for the initial mm -hmm. removal of stimulus, the initial you know, step outside that QE mode. You know, maybe Janet Yellen does the same thing and you know, hands off the ball or tees up the ball to run the play going forward, even though she may not be the QB at that point mm. in time. I'm just suggest I'm not suggesting that she does leave, but I'm saying that maybe that you could draw similar parallels in, in that sense. So ultimately, the number one question, David, is who fills those seats? What type of people fill those seats? It's probably not going to be as an econometric or, or maybe even mass-savvy people um, that puts fear in you know, people's eyes, but sure. at the same time, people who understand the business side of the equation. So that in and of itself is a different reaction function than we're used to for the past two decades. We'll come back in just a couple seconds here, but uh, do we have clues as to who those people might be? Are you are you getting a sense of, of who the president might pick? Um, you know, it's probably going to be a moderate in some sense. You know, there's not really hard clues. You know, you see some suggestions. Clearly, community banker or somebody mm -hmm. like that is in the mix. Um, you know, there's there's hardliners which were initially suggested, and you know, including Taylor, Kevin Warsh, people like that who might be in the milks if if it does go uh, to the more hawkish side. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, uh, you know, more moderate, uh, more moderate folks, uh, you know, might necessarily be. Uh, might be in the mix, and, and there's and there's you know Jerome Powell as, sure. as one example. Being <clears throat> Republican could be could be that suggestion again, one option. Jerome Schneider with us with Pimco right now. Jerome, have you quantified the benefit and cost analysis of the Great Distortion? I know it benefited the financial system, it benefited the banks. We needed banking stability, and simplistically on the other side of the ledger, savers got crushed. Have you ever seen that math? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's actually pretty pretty straightforward. Oddly enough, if you look at um, if you look at where you could basically invest uh, cash effectively over the past, let's say since two thousand eight, two thousand nine, late two thousand nine, uh, or early two thousand nine uh, to today, you basically have lost in terms of purchasing power roughly fifteen to sixteen percent of purchasing power just by being in cash. So even though we've been at a really relatively low nominal interest rate, and that's arguable depending on what metric you use, the ultimate thing is looking at uh, you know looking at how that increases, meaning that dispersion increases, that cost increases over the foreseeable future as inflation increases. And so that is actually pretty quantifiable. So simply put, you know, Tom, in a world over the past few years where basically you had um, you had inflation modest, your purchasing power today of a dollar today versus a year from now might have only been, you know, uh, 99 cents. But now it's probably 98, edging on 97 cents every year that you get eroded. So that, that's really the focal point, the damaging to the, to the saver. So long story short is if savers weren't penalized enough over the mm-hmm. past seven, eight, nine years, the horses actually yet to come. So I hate to say the, the headlines are only getting worse. What uh, What's your forecast for volatility here? We've had such low volatility for, for so long now. Is your outlook that that's going to, to pick up and how do you navigate that? Well, I think that's the biggest challenge. And you can actually look at the headlines, the real-time headlines today in terms of in terms of the announcements of the Czech Central Bank, you know, looking to remove their currency cap. That, that in and of itself is a highlight that central banks are reacting in different ways. And, and the reaction function, not just of central banks, but reaction function to central banks is something that has created volatility in the market. You know, David, we've had this really warm blanket over our shoulders the past seven, eight years. Um, quantitative easing has really removed the tail risk of a lot of risk assets. We know that. Well, when you unwind that, when we get to that normalization process that we were discussing at the top mm-hmm. of the show, you know, basically you have your people to a little bit of tail risk, both right and left tail risk, as we like to say at PIMCO. And so one of the things we really think about in terms of portfolio positioning for our clients is recognizing the fact that the distribution of outcomes, normalized outcomes, has actually been reduced over that horizon, oh. meaning you should expect lower returns, and it's actually pushed out right. the tails, the potential for volatility. So volatility should increase. So pretty, pretty much squaring positions a little bit at this point in time for that optionality, what may occur, is actually probably okay. a little more prudent. So. We, have, we have a hardwired intuitive feel. <laughs> That if yield goes up, I believe price goes down. <laughs> Does that mean money markets go down in value in very, very short-term paper within two years? In relative sense, yeah. I mean, money market funds don't move much, admittedly. You have a notion of, of $1 par in ABs and close to $1 par in ABs, but although they fluctuate for prime and credit money market funds, the, the damaging effect is that a money market fund, we've had three rate hikes. You're not, you know, not going to see those the nominal yield on those money market funds be linear, one for one. Well, I agree. And the answer is to mitigate the natural price decline, they fix it other ways. And the way is the nominal yield goes up late. It's delayed. How, how, what's the typical delay? Two years? Well, Two quarters? Well, in the history, it's actually been really quick. It's been weeks, days, in fact. Really? And yeah, and, and that's the problem with the reaction function. The system has fundamentally changed in terms of how how sloshy, if you will, that reaction function is. Sloshy is CFA level yes. four. <laughs> in case you, you know. yeah, t- in case Taylor to, Riggs had, is listening. Yeah, I had to sloshy. <laughs> I had to take it twice just to make sure I got that definition correct. But the 
reality is, is that when you look at that on an upward basis, that dispersion only grows, Tom. Mm. That dispersion between protecting and get, capturing those increasing rates is actually more challenging. There's a couple of reasons also for that is you might necessarily have a change in monetary policy from the Fed, you know, not getting too wonkish and too into the details, but we've come so far in terms of how the Fed thinks about managing rates. We have a corridor system where you have a reverse repo policy acting as the denominator, that lower bound. So if the Fed decides over the next few years they want to get away with it, not a likely probability, but a possibility, and to get more back to the old-fashioned way of draining and managing reserves on a daily basis, things right. change. Things could fundamentally change yeah. in a different way. Thank you so much, George Snyder. Greatly appreciate it. Always smart with PIMCO, and particularly here with these dynamics. And you heard it there, folks. He said the great distortion uh, may continue. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Diane Swank, the founder of DS Economics, joining us uh, from Chicago. Diane, help me with uh, the numbers we just got, those initial jobless claims numbers, in concert with the ADP numbers uh, yesterday, 78,000 jobs more uh, than surveyed as we head to Jobs Day tomorrow. What's your sense of of what we're going to see? Well, the underlying economy in the jobs market is improving, and that's the most important thing to remember. We could see some very strange numbers tomorrow because of unusually warm weather in February and really snowy weather in March. One of the reasons that we saw the jobs claims come off after they spiked in mid-March was they spiked during the survey week when we had blizzard-like conditions across much of the country after we had 70s and 80s here in Chicago in in the, the wintry months. So that really could pull some job gains ahead into February and January and less in March. That said, the story hasn't changed. The labor market is healing. It's finally healing in a more broad-based way. And most importantly, um, we're starting to see shortages pick up and we're starting to see wages accelerate and employers now invest once again in training. That's something that was cut dramatically during the crisis. It's something employers, they could just cream the top of the pool of employees and hire whoever they wanted. Now they need to dip deeper into the pool of potential workers and bring their skills up. This is something we've not seen en masse, and we certainly want to see since the go-go days of the late 1990s. You mentioned wage growth. If I'm not mistaken, the numbers were all right last time. I think that they were they were okay. I can't remember exactly yes, how much wage growth we saw. percent above a year ago, I can tell you exactly. Yeah, so what, what are you expecting tomorrow? In other words, is, is the focus for you still going to be squarely on wage growth when we get this report tomorrow? Wages and also the stress measures of unemployment, everything from U6, that measure that includes people working part-time instead of full-time when they want to seek full-time work, those discouraged in the workforce, those marginalized. So all of the factors that had been very, very bad earlier in the expansion are slowly, not as fast as we'd like, but slowly getting better. We're slowly whittling away. The question is, how far can we go? I'm hoping to see wage gains at two point, hold at 2.8% from a year ago. The Fed rule of thumb is that we need 3% sustained wage growth to see sustained inflation at 2%. We also know the Fed is now thinking about raising that inflation target of 2% so we can allow yeah. some catch-up and maybe include more people in this labor market right. recovery. Diane, I've, it's a chart you know. I've taken claims, which just came out, 
and I compare it to the number employed, and I take it back to Lyndon Baines Johnson. It is an absolutely extraordinary chart of two Americas. We spend all our time on the gloom of an unemployed America. James Diamond of J.P. Morgan with that fabulous annual report looking at labor participation, etc. Help me with the good America, the employed America. Those claims numbers tell me it's incredibly tight for employers to get new people to work. Is that true? You know, it is, and it really gets to Jamie's letter, and I read Jamie's letter as well. I used to work for Jamie, I think, very highly of him. But I think, you know, to the letter and to the point here is there is two Americas. There's urban America, and now reaching out into some suburbs, it's broadening, and then there's rural America. And when Jamie talked about those who are sort of disenfranchised, he's talked about the 10 million workers that if we raise labor force participation rate for prime-age men, they could come back. But 57% of those workers are on disability. Less than 1% of people on disability ever come back. And we know that many of those workers opted into disability, may be stretched on their reasons for disability because there is no other safety net. The problem is, in doing that, it's hard to ever get them back into the labor force. We also know that in urban areas, there has been a move. Last year was a remarkable first step towards something more normal. We moved from just urban hotspots to people doing better in metro suburban areas as well. Well, going further out into the suburbs to look not just the urban center. It turns out millennials are willing to move out to the suburbs when gas prices are lower and when it's really expensive in the urban core. Also, employers are now starting to look at less expensive areas. This is what we need is a long expansion is one of the things we can hope for the most to finally spreading some of those gains that have Mm -hmm. been in very urban areas to more suburban. And what we really hope is to reach into those rural areas where vicious cycle and poverty has erupted. Let's come back with Diane Swank this day before the jobs day. We've been so busy, David, in a week that wasn't supposed to be busy. I barely focused on jobs. I'm glad you brought up those questions. Good. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, we have the, the usual cast of characters tomorrow we do. to diminish who what they a are. I mean, it's, a great, it's a great cast. Yeah. we got uh, Ellen Zender, Alan Kruger, James Glassman, and of course, yeah. uh, Bill Gross with us tomorrow. There, I, got goose, I, got, I got Michael Barr. I, I've got surveillance goosebumps right now. <laughs> I mean, that's a, what a lineup. Ellen Zentner, See, Morgan Stanley. That's how I feel when I'm sitting next it's to you. Just great. Oh, oh, please. Michael. No, but it's just great. I mean, I mean, this is why we get, get up at the hour get we get up. Yeah, call the doctor. Yeah, call the doctor. He gets a free cup of coffee. <laughs> um, the, the, it's why we get up and do this. I mean, it's just a great list. Tomorrow we're going to continue on Diane Swank. I want to talk to her. She's got visceral, visceral knowledge of the American auto yes. industry. She has like eight degrees from Michigan. There you go. I mean, she bleeds blue. I mean, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Not that you would understand, no. David, bleeding. Got my own Hill Michigan, yeah. A really important voice on our manufacturing industry. Diane, tell me about your ute in the auto industry. <laughs> what was it like being a child of Michigan? That kind of implies that she's fun. still not. Not know. very fun. I, you know, you can write a book about it. Um, it was actually the hardest part was growing up and seeing the industry that my yeah. father thought was his dream die. And watching my friend's parents lose jobs, even as my father still had a job and we had a new car and they didn't. And that was a really, yeah. really hard reality to live with. One of the hardest realities was when I had to um, watch my father drive all of the cars that GM made rather than just the nice ones. And he realized just how bad a lot of them were back in the 1980s. 
And that is, folks, singularly why Diane Swank joins us as often as we can get her on. Drag us forward to the modern auto industry. Would your father know it? Uh, Yeah, you know, because he actually, my dad was at the cutting edge of technology, so he would know it extremely well. One of the things that really happened when we started to do um, just-in-time inventories, and we removed a lot of inventories of stacks of inventories from production um, on these plant lots, not only did machinery do things more accurately than some of the people on the line did um, and repeatedly do do it more accurately, it also eliminated the ability to literally hide cars that were made poorly underneath stacks of inventories. Inventory. This really happened. My father used to go out on expeditions when he was young onto the vehicle plants to look under stacks of inventories to find the cars that were supposed to have shown up off the production line that didn't and that were really bad. So, you know, we have to also take into account the increases in quality. Output of auto manufacturing as a share of the total is near its peak in the U.S. of what it was back in the 1970s. It's just the share of people working in that industry is no longer what it once was. And and the qualifications to be able to work in the industry are no longer what they once were. You need to be able to work with computers. You need to be able to fix very complex computer electronics to work in a vehicle plant. And there's many fewer people in a vehicle plant. There's also fewer injuries. I saw, I've walked a lot of vehicle plants in my life. And how dirty a plant was back in the 1970s versus today, how spotless they are and how few injuries people get is really a phenomenal change. Diane, let me ask you, we had a conversation a couple of days ago with Chris Repke of uh, MEFG Union Bank. We were talking about the ISM manufacturing data that had come out, and he uh, had a lot of optimism about what that might mean for the job support we're going to get tomorrow. He seems very optimistic that we're going to see manufacturers hiring more. Do you see the same connective tissue there between these, these two sets of data? We do have, I mean, we have over 300,000 jobs in the manufacturing sector that are unfilled, the same as 2007 because of a skills gap. We've been unable to fill those jobs, and so now we're starting to train workers and create a pipeline. It's easier to do in the manufacturing sector than it is someplace like Carpenters, which is a much more dispersed kind of um, population of workers. That said, yes, I do think we'll see strong manufacturing, but off of what level? Manufacturing peaked as a share of employment in the U.S. at over 30%. It's running 8% today. It will never go back to 30% because of the productivity gains we've seen. And I think the training and the different kind of job that we have today is very different, and it still can't employ a mass number of unskilled workers. So the thought that it can go back and do that is just a, a falsehood. But then do we need a public policy, a little Switzerland, even if it's federal alone or it's federal policy devolved to the state level, the county level, the Lansing, Michigan level? Do we need a policy? We need a policy, but it's not just manufacturing. I think it's easier for manufacturers to actually hook up with a local uh, uh, community college because, in fact, they do have enough volume of workers to train and to pay for it and to make it economically feasible for both the public-private sector partnership to get these workers trained in into the pipeline. I actually have seen that even in the most rural of communities where people said people don't have skills. They do, and they can be trained. It's much harder for something like construction workers where you know, you've got a lot of individual builders. You can't 
and even re- people who repair, say, um, trucks and different kinds of machinery, there's a smaller population of them. And there's not enough critical mass for these community college to take on the job of training those workers. And that's where the gaps are. When they talk about apprenticeships and things like that, well, it sounds nice in theory. In reality, executing that, it does need help from a very macro level that we're not seeing and we've never really seen in this country. Diane, how is all that's been happening or not happening in Washington going to be reflected in the jobs report tomorrow? I think about the debate over changes to the Affordable Care Act. I think about the the prospects for tax reform, when indeed that happens, if it does. Are we going to see that reflected in the, the data that we get tomorrow? Well, what we're going to be watching closely for is, in addition to these weather-related, you know, sort of bumps in the road that could be there, you know, the, 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 the significance on these numbers is 100,000 plus or minus. So it's a roll of the dice. That said, what are the things we're worried about? Well, there is a federal hiring freeze, and there's 1,200 um, presidential appointees that have yet to be even named, let alone appointed. So those two things could lower federal hiring. And there's an enormous amount of attrition at the federal level. These are older workers, bureaucrats who are retiring. Out, and morale is low in Washington, let's face it, and they know that there's budget cuts coming, so we're going to watch that federal number. Also, uncertainty about the Affordable Care Act. Hiring in the health care industry had been very robust, particularly in the areas most affected by the Affordable Care Act. We've yet to see a slowdown there, but anecdotally, we've been hearing some pullback. The other area we're going to be watching, immigrants, everything from leisure and hospitality, where immigrants play an outsized role in hiring. They've not been showing up for work because of fears of deportation and tourism itself. We've seen many large players complain that tourism from abroad because of increased vetting at the airports has slowed down tourism and there's actually been some boycotts. So those are the things Mm -hmm. we'll be looking for. On a secular level, we're still waiting for that other shoe to drop in retail, the move from bricks to clicks, how we shop and how what kind of model of what it really means to be a retailer in this economy. Even though we're spending money, that is still going to be affecting. Retail is one of the largest employers in the country, and that's going to be a big effect on how the job numbers go out going forward. Diane Swank, thank you so much, particularly those comments on uh, Michigan uh, and your childhood. She is with uh, Diane Swank Economics. He is a 10th ambassador to China. Uh, Just simply that, Gary Locke, uh, the former ambassador to China, and it is a most uh, and good time to speak to uh, Gary Locke. Uh, Gary, wonderful to speak to you, Ambassador. What was it like your first day on the watch in Beijing? Well, it was uh, quite a heady experience. I mean, uh, we were received uh, with great uh, fanfare and, and a very, very warm welcome by both the Chinese people, the Chinese government, and also the employees of the embassy. And uh, we had a big job ahead of us at that time. We were really trying to increase the sale of American-made goods and services, exports, because uh, it was our belief that the more U.S. companies exported to China, the more they produce, the more they produce, more workers they need, and that means good-paying jobs. Some people can talk about this. Others lived it. You lived it, third-generation Chinese. Your father served in World War II. Uh, your grandparents. You didn't speak English till you went to kindergarten. Is that true? That's about right. Uh, uh, preschool and kindergarten is when I really learned English. Yeah. At the same time that my mom was learning English to become a United States citizen, and we remember that she was uh, officially uh, uh, sworn in as a citizen on Fourth of July. 
What do you need Americans to understand then about the modern Chinese experience and the relationship of the president of China to the Chinese uh, Americans? Well, China has a great deal of nationalism and great pride in its country, and they feel that in the mid-1800s, they were stunted uh, and uh, subjugated and and basically colonized uh, uh, and abused by the Western powers. Uh, And so they have this big and almost chip on their shoulder, and they've really tried to overcome that. Now, part of those uh, stagnation and the backwardness of China was also due to some of the policies of the Chinese rulers. And then, of course, there was a civil war between uh, uh, the nationalist and the communist, and the communists took over in 1949. But they have been on a, a tear on a mission to try to catch up and regain their what they feel is their rightful place in history uh, with all the modernization that's gone on in the last uh, just a few decades. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of Chinese people have been lifted out of poverty. Uh, and China now is perhaps one of the most modern countries, and it's the most dramatic transformation the world has ever seen. And so they're really trying to catch up, and uh, uh, and in fact, now they're the second largest economy in the world. And so they have enormous challenges still, uh, and so they, they feel that um, they're on a path to, to continue to regain their glory and to assert their dominance and their, their glory. And uh, so they're going to approach uh, the United States uh, in their eyes as, as an equal. Ambassador Locke, uh, we have the White House saying they want to preserve some spontaneity at this 24-hour meeting that they're going to have at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. I've been to the Strategic and Economic Dialogue in Beijing, and I must say I didn't detect much in the way of spontaneity uh, at an event like that one. You've been at many of these meetings with, with Chinese officials. How hard is it going to be to have an informal give and take with the Chinese leadership? Depends on how they set the framework. I mean, even if they take long walks, uh, you know, the Chinese have their points. Uh, the Chinese leader will have their points that he will want to reiterate and, and express. I'm sure uh, President Trump uh, will do the same. Now, given the personality of President Trump, uh, he's not one to be scripted, and so uh, I'm sure the, the Chinese are, are prepared for that. Uh, I think that uh, as long as they're not sitting at a table uh, across from each other with notes in front of them, because uh, you know at these meetings, all the, all the sides do is really just read from their own notes and not even really listen to the other side. They're almost talking past each other and just reiterating their points. Mm-hmm. And if someone, if one side mm-hmm. raises a point, they have their stock response. And so there's not real give and take. And let's hope that, uh, uh, that uh, this will happen. It happened to a degree with President Obama when they had that visit in California and they were taking those long walks. Yeah. sunny lands, yeah. Well, on the Republican side of it, I mean, I mean Henry Paulson, as Secretary of the Treasury, was hugely uh, pro-dialogue with China, I think more than anyone maybe, uh, you know, within the Republican administrations, he continued to advance the dialogue. Let's just pick a topic. How about the border tax, which is, which is uh, uh, you know, discussed with Mexico? But am I right, Ambassador, that an import tax like a border tax would directly affect China? Well, of course, so that will raise the price of Chinese goods. Uh, it will also mean that these goods are much more expensive to American consumers, which is why many people, even on the Republican side, are opposed to it, because it's going to hit directly hit the pocketbooks of uh, yeah. Americans when, when you buy products, whether it's microwave ovens, electronics, whether it's uh, clothes or shoes or games, uh, iPhones, you name it. 
uh, that's going to cost Americans more, which means they have less disposable income for college well, education, medical care, or college, uh, or, or just uh, retirement. But the point is that China will retaliate. China can also impose a tax on U.S. goods, and uh, the Chinese people don't have to buy those American goods. I mean, right. they, they well, really like it. It's in great demand, and especially like Boeing, where 25 percent of all Boeing airplanes are sold to China. The Chinese airlines can easily buy Airbus, and that will have a dramatic impact on American jobs as well. And we spoke to Airbus America's uh, senior executive the other day. Ambassador, we're going to have you back to continue this discussion. Help me here with the idea of your watch in Beijing. Did you observe the Chinese ever, quote-unquote, retaliate? Oh, yeah. We saw uh, various uh, trade moves. for instance, uh, when we, America, found that they were improperly, illegally subsidizing various industries or some of their industries were selling goods at below normal normal uh, cost, uh, they were subjected to uh, tariffs and, and penalties uh, by the U.S. government, uh, which is accordance with our laws, and we treat everyone fairly, whether the goods are coming from Mexico, France, or Canada, or China. But the Chinese would in- inevitably find another product uh, from America and slap a tariff on that and uh, basically uh, stop the export or significantly reduce the export of those made-in-USA, American-made goods uh, coming into China. And that affected the job situation yeah. of many industries in America. And a few more questions with Ambassador Locke. Gary Locke, of course, our 10th United States ambassador to China. Gary, let's take it away from China with the breaking news that we have. We're starting to see some real turmoil of personnel, not only a president that has not filled positions in cabinet uh, divisions in Washington, but also people coming, people going. Tell us about what that uproar does to bureaucracy in Washington. Well, you have a lot of uh, um, career people. Uh, uh, but they have to be supervised and policy and themes and uh, priorities established by the political appointees. And when the president, any president, does not have a full team in place, then the bureaucracy is going to basically just kind of uh, hunker down and just do what's absolutely necessary. But in these tough, tough issues, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Russia, whether it's uh, obviously China and North Korea, you need as many people uh, and hands on deck to help formulate the policy so that the bureaucracy can execute. Uh, And uh, uh, he needs to put his national security team in place. He needs to have uh, the people at the State Department who are going to be guiding these policies in place as quickly as possible. One more question, if we could, quickly, and then we have to move on to the breaking news in Washington. Ambassador Locke, you were governor of Washington State. Can you take credit for the rebuilding of the Gonzaga basketball program? Are you going to take full credit for that? They got a great coach. They got a great administration. They've got a great student body, and obviously great uh, players and loyal, Greg. loyal fans. So I, I'm pleased to be one of those fans. Greg, wonderful ambassador and governor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.